This episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast is brought to you by PowerTap. PowerTap is part of the Saris family of brands carrying on the commitment to American manufacturing and assembly. From pedals to chainring to hubs and wheels, PowerTap has a power meter for every type of athlete. PowerTap is the only power meter brand to have the full portfolio of power meters, including the P1S single-sided pedals. And PowerTap has a giveaway for listeners of this podcast. Head over to swimbikemom.com forward slash giveaway. We are giving away a set of P1S single-sided PowerTap pedals. Check out PowerTap online and on social media and enjoy the show. This episode is with Rob Jones. Rob is a Marine who lost both of his legs in combat, and he is doing something extraordinary, running 31 marathons in 31 days in 31 cities. Hope you guys enjoy listening to his story. As a preliminary matter, I would like to apologize for the quality of our interview as far as the sound quality. I was hiding in my basement (laughs) because they were paving the road outside, and the acoustics are not great on my end. Um, We tried to clean it up as best as we could, and so I want to apologize for that, but I did not want you guys to miss out on Rob's story because he's starting his journey on these marathons tomorrow, actually, the 14th of October, 2017. So thanks for your understanding about the quality of the episode, but I just wanted to make sure we got Rob's story out there in a timely manner, so I hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those 24 hours that makes all of the difference in our health, our happiness, and our success. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a new episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today, I have a great guest. His name is Rob Jones. Hi, Rob. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. Like I told you before we got started, I'm actually hiding down in my basement because they're paving the road outside of the house. (laughs) So I'm trying to find a quiet space. So um, there's no telling what the acoustic sounds like, but have my uh, favorite producer who will make it sound good, I'm sure. <laughs> so thanks for being a part of this um, this show. I'm really excited to talk to you. Scott Rigsby um, referred me to you, and we had Scott on um, a couple months ago. So I'm super excited to hear your story and what amazing things you have coming up. So let's start with the beginning. Let's. Who is Rob, and where did you come from? Sure. Um I grew up in Virginia uh, on a farm, a horse farm, and uh, not a whole lot, you know, special there. I uh, grew up doing chores and and working hard, and you know, I didn't enjoy it just like any other teenager. Uh, but you know, I I'm kind of uh, happy at this point that I had to do it because it kind of uh, gave me a good work ethic and started me on the path of having to do things I didn't really want to do. Right. So how many horses were there? Um, I think at its peak, my parents probably had something like 15, 16 horses. That's a lot of manure. (laughs) Yeah. And I had to clean it up too. So, (laughs) you know, uh, 
Yeah, they would just do they would just do horseback rides uh, off of my my uh, grandparents' property, and that's how they made their living. And I had to be a vital part of that. Yeah, were you an only child? No, you know, I had a sister. My or I still have a sister. Uh, she's three years older than me, and then my little brother is about ten years uh, younger than me. Okay, so you got stuck with the majority of the manure then. Yeah. So by the time. <laughs> By the time my little brother was uh, old enough to start doing chores, uh, my my parents had moved and, and weren't doing the horses anymore. Oh, go figure, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what were your teenage years like? Uh, you know, just pretty pretty normal besides, besides that. Um, just hung out with my friends and went to, went to school. And, you know, that's about it. And then came home and did my chores. Yeah. So uh, when, when did you decide to join the Marines? Uh, so I went to Virginia Tech um, after I graduated high school. And sometime in my junior year, I don't know what the catalyst was, but sometime in my junior year, I decided I needed to do something that was you know, beyond my own self-interest, I need to be a part of something that was bigger than myself, uh, like a lot of people that joined the military. And so my friend had just joined the Marine Corps the year before me. And so I started, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I started, I read a couple books about the Marine Corps and I read the book Brotherhood of Heroes about the battle of Pele Lu and World War II. And just reading those pages, um, it really struck a chord with me and I, and I came to realize that that's what I wanted, that brotherhood that came with the Marine Corps and that sense of purpose, uh, that came with it. So I decided to join up after my junior year of, uh, college. So this was before, well, obviously it's before you graduated. So you were that con- yeah, so, con- convinced that it was something you had to do. Well, you know, I still wanted to finish my degree. So what I did was I joined the reserves first. So I joined the reserves. And I was able to finish my last year of college. Okay. My original plan was to use that degree for to get a commissioning, because um, that's a requirement. And then, but before I could do that, my a reserve unit said we are sending a volunteer platoon to Iraq. And so, instead of uh, you know going to officer school, I you know I joined the Marine Corps to go fight the wars. So. Uh, I decided to take that opportunity to, to go to Iraq, so I volunteered. And so what year was this? It would have been 2008. Um, we went to Habaniya, Iraq, and there wasn't much going on during that time period in Habaniya. Kind of uh, the hot time for Habaniya was a couple years earlier. And so it was pretty much pacified, and so we spent most of our time there. I was a combat engineer and we spent most of our time. And so what does a combat engineer do? Uh, a combat engineer, uh, there's a lot of different facets of it, but uh, there's construction associated with it. Uh, you could do you could work on an air wing, and what they do is uh, runways and work on stuff on the airfield. But my personal uh, side of it was dealing with explosives, using explosives to breach obstacles and uh, create obstacles. And then, so a lot of the times what they 
classically did was uh, emplace and defeat minefield. So that so they get we got a lot of training with uh, metal detectors mm-hmm. and mine. So that kind of naturally uh, then made us the kind of the the subject matter experts for finding things that are buried in the ground. So in Iraq, uh, there weren't a whole lot of IEDs in our area. So we spent most of our time finding buried weapons caches. Um, so the, the local populace would give us a tip about uh, an area where they knew or they thought there might be a buried weapons cache and we would patrol out there and just search with our metal detectors every square inch of that area and we would find stuff like you know rpgs grenades um regular hand-thrown grenades you know artillery shells um ammunition that kind of thing so we spent seven months just doing that so when you say ied what is ied an ied is an improvised explosive device so uh, it's the one of the number one casualty producers in over in Iraq and Afghanistan right now, and has been for pretty much ever since the uh, invasion of Iraq. Uh, so basically, what it is is in Iraq, it was munitions, explosive munitions like a grenade or an artillery round that was rigged up in a way that is unconventional. So it's improvised. So usually, for example, an artillery round will be shot out of a howitzer. Mm-hmm. And so instead of shooting it out of a howitzer, they would blow it up. They would bury it on the side of the road and rig it up to a cell phone or something like that and blow it up using this uh, improvised way of uh, exploding it. So that's how they came up with the way the term improvised explosive device. Isn't it? In Afghanistan, it's a little bit different because they don't have all these leftover munitions. So what they would do is make their own, uh, make their own explosives. They would use homemade explosives in a big jug, and they would they would bury that jug. Wow! And so that's a difference. So, but but they're both they both fall into the IED category. So did you know coming out of college that you wanted to work with explosive devices in in the military or did you just kind of fall into it? You know, I, uh, basically it was, I just kind of fell into it. I wanted to do some kind of, uh, I want to do some fighting. So I kind of fell into the combat engineer, uh, job because my reserve unit, the reserve unit, or unit that I went to just so happened to be a combat engineer job. And I wanted to do some kind of a fighting uh, job, whether it's infantry or being in tanks or something like that. And so, you know, it just so happened I, I lucked out and I was able to get a job that uh, I got, I pretty much was, was attached to an infantry platoon and I did all the infantry stuff and I would just have my metal detector and my explosives. So it was exactly what I wanted. Wow. So what happened with your next deployment? So you came home from Iraq, right? And you went back to Afghanistan in 2010. Is that what happened? Yeah, so I came back from Iraq, and, you know, I wasn't totally satisfied with the deployment there. So how long, wait, to... how long were you in Iraq? It was seven months in Iraq. Okay, the seven Marine months. Marines are generally seven months. Okay. And so but pretty much immediately when we came home, my reserve unit said, we are sending a platoon mm-hmm. to Afghanistan. So I said, well, 
I volunteer. I, I decided, I, you know, I joined the Marine Corps to fight. So I decided to go back over. And, uh, but it was about a year in between deployments. So I just kind of took a job, uh, at my old college town and waited for the deployment to happen and just kind of prepared myself. And then the Afghanistan deployment was in, uh, I think we got there in April of 2010. And that was a lot different. So there were the Afghanistan at the time was picking back up. And so, you know, the first three, the first three months of it, we were kind of in a past fight area and it was pretty similar to my Iraq deployment. But then we moved to Stengen, Afghanistan, which was kind of Taliban central. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there were a lot more IEDs over there. And so my job uh, remained the same. Uh, when we, I would patrol with, an infantry squad or a platoon. And when we approached an area where there was a high likelihood of an IED being there, uh, I would go out in front of everybody else and I would clear a route through that area. So kind of imagine if you're an easy example would be if we were crossing a bridge and the Taliban had limited resources. So they might plant an IED kind of on either side of that bridge because they knew that we would have to cross uh, using that bridge. And you went first. Right. So I would go first with my metal detector wow. and make sure. And, and then I would follow, I would leave a little trail of breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs, so to speak, for uh, everybody else to follow. So I know I could go, probably get off on a rabbit trail with this, but so <laughs> when you, because this is so fascinating to me, when you s- detected, so you detected the IED with your metal detector and then you would when you say leave a trail of breadcrumbs, like leave a path that was safe, how, how would you mark that? Uh, you know, you would use, you could use different methods. Um, the way that we were doing it most often would be chem light. Um, and they're kind of like those little glow in the dark lights. You snap and crack them. Okay. And they light up. So okay. I would just, like, I wouldn't crack them, but I would just lay them behind me. And so basically they would just, step exactly on those things or right next to those things. Wow. That's the a way heck that it, of a lot of trust. Yeah. Well, you wow. know, that's what, it, uh, that's what the, the brotherhood is all about. It's, yeah. it's a two way. So I, they would trust that I had cleared that route and, you know, technically I had cleared it. So I cleared it with my metal detector and then I actually physically had to step all the way along that route. So I had, I had actually double checked it with my own two feet. Uh, before they even walked on it. So as long as they followed exactly where I stepped, then they were good. Okay. But at the time, I had to trust that they were watching my back as well because I can't, I can't uh, try and find an ID and provide my own security. Right, right. So they would have to be watching my back. If I was trying to provide my own security, I'd probably miss it because I'd be too focused on something else. So it requires all my focus. So... Yeah, you know, we had to trust each other, and that's what it's all about. So let's talk about the life-changing moment. Okay, yeah. Uh, so I was doing, we were, uh, we were on this thing called a push, and we were pushing through into Taliban territory, and we stopped to take a little break. And when we got up to, uh, to keep moving, somebody else in the patrol stepped on an IED, 
And what happened was theirs was what we call a low order detonation. And so it really didn't, it was pretty much just a firecracker. So nobody was injured, uh, no damage done. But when that happens with the Taliban or any kind of terrorist organization that we were fighting, their, uh, their standard operating procedure would be to plant more than one kind of in the same place. Because when one person gets hit, they know that we are going to come and rescue them and get them out of there. So they plant a second one so the rescue team would hit that. But sometimes they would even plant a third one so the you know subsequent rescue teams would, would hit that. So... Uh, so then, so when we find one, we know that there's likely to be two or three. So I got out my metal detector and started clearing the route through that area. And unfortunately, the IED found me before I was able to find it. And that resulted in double above knee amputation of both legs. So do you, on the spot? Yeah. Wow. Do you remember anything about the sequence of events? Like when it detonated and like what, what? Walk us through what you remember. Yeah, I remember I was probably unconscious for 20 seconds. So, you know, one instant I'm on my feet searching for an IED and the next second I'm on my back. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and, and it's kind of the stand, what you would expect with an injury like that. You know, lots of screaming, lots of uh, dust. And, uh, you know, I could hear ringing in my, like, all I could hear was like ringing in the ears. Um, all I, it was kind of, I had tunnel vision. It was kind of, my body was separated from my mind. And so my body was kind of just reacting and my mind was conscious, but it wasn't, I wasn't actually telling my body to scream or do anything, but it was doing it kind of on its own volition. Wow. So it was very, it was it's kind of interesting and it took me, you know, probably another 20 seconds to, until my body kind of, calm down a little bit you know the uh standard stuff happened where they uh the marines that were there came over they put tourniquets on me uh the corpsman or the medic guy he came over and he uh shot me up with some morphine and you know they did all the standard stuff they put a tube like up your nose and so that you can breathe easier and pretty much they stabilized me as much as they could and they carried me over on a stretcher to uh to a tank and then the tank drove me to meet a helicopter wow and then put me they put me out so did you and this is probably a dumb question did did, what did you feel did you feel anything did you realize what had happened or was your body just completely were you just in shock no i knew right away that uh at least parts of my legs were going to be gone Uh, i didn't how much uh, exactly, but I knew, I mean, you kind of know. It's like, it's an IED. I I knew what I was out there doing, and I know what IEDs do, so uh, I knew something was going to be missing down there. Um, And so it kind of felt, it wasn't really pain in the the way that you would, you would kind of think about it. It's more, it was more of numbness, really painful numbness. So, if your arm fell asleep because you're sleeping on it and you wake up and you can't really feel your arm, it felt like that except maybe multiplied by 50 times or something. It was like a really powerful numbness. Wow. That's like my most hated feeling ever. So I would not. (laughs) I don't recommend doing it. No, it's like, oh my goodness. So, I mean, you went into obviously this job 
knowing that this was always a possible risk. So when you woke up on your back, you, you knew, you knew what had happened. Yeah. It was, I mean, yeah, it's, it, you pretty much automatically know what's, yeah. what's, what. So what happened once you got to the hospital and you st- started the recovery process? And I mean, I imagine you went right into surgery and talk, talk about that a little bit, kind of the process of what happened over the next few months. Yeah, I was in and out of surgery. Um, took me five days to get to America. Uh, in and out of surgery, doing revisions on the on the uh, on the amputations, like uh, cutting away infections that might have happened, and just making the stumps kind of a little bit more viable for prosthetics, and just doing anything they had to to make sure I stayed alive, and. And then just cleaning it out and just getting getting any kind of nastiness out of there. And then the first week that I was in America, I was pretty I was pretty much high on Dilaudid uh, painkiller uh, for pretty much the first week. So I kind of have vague memories of it, but I was just hallucinating most of the time. Yeah. And, you know, I I kind of remember people coming to visit me, so I have you know flashes of memories for that. But I was pretty high, so. <laughs> That's when my dad was in a motorcycle accident, like uh, in twenty, I guess two thousand five, and I remember he was on. He had a lot of injuries, and he was on something. But I remember sitting in the hospital room with him, and he was a, a tile contractor, and I would talk to him for hours while he would tell me how to tile the room. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, "That tile needs to go there." I'm like, "Yeah, I got it, Dad." So, did you have yeah. like crazy hallucinations like that? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I had weird hallucinations and some kind of like nasty ones. Uh, but you know, it only took about a, a week or so for my body to get back used to the used to the meds, mm-hmm. and I kind of became lucid again. And pretty much right away, you know, I was I was I never really had a period of time where I felt sorry for myself or anything like that. I kind of immediately decided I was going to figure out a way to to recover and you know kind of get back anything that I may have lost so I don't know I just had a I have an uncanny knack for for accepting a situation and just kind of moving on with what needs to be done so in your mind what needed to be done when you when you started to get a little bit clearer and you knew okay this is what I got going what what did you see as your path my mind was telling me that I needed to come up with a workout program to get strong again and get my strength back because I knew I had lost a lot. And so when I was looking for workout ways I could work out still, uh, I found, I found out about the Paralympics and I found out about Paralympic rowing. And at the time, you know, I thought it might be kind of interesting to try and see if I could make the 2012 Paralympics. Um, but obviously I had the therapy and the recovery that I needed to do. And, you know, once I found out a little bit more about prosthetics, the nurses would, and the physical therapists would come in and kind of tell you about what to expect with prosthetics down the road. Uh, I, you know, I, I decided, Oh, I just need to get my strength back and I need to learn how to use these prosthetics and I'll, I'll be back, uh, back up to about as much a sense of normalcy as you could expect. Uh, and, you know, and, and however long it takes me. So that was my, 
that was my immediate goal, like to, just to get back up on my feet. How did you choose rowing? Was that something you did before? I just remembered that the rowing machine in the gym was a hard workout. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, and it just, I mean, and that combined with the fact that it was a Paralympic sport. So I wanted okay. to try out a sport. So, you know, those two things combined made me want to choose rowing. And also there was a rowing club where I could learn rowing in Washington, D.C. So, you know, kind of all three of those things had to happen. And so where did that rowing journey take you? Yeah, so that that started, you know, I kind of focused on my recovery at first. And then once I kind of got to a point where I was ready to, to move on into new things, focus on things besides walking. Um, I went out and I learned how to row and, you know, I kind of took naturally to it as I was told. And I, I managed to, they didn't have a rowing machine in the, in the clinic. So I managed to convince the physical therapy clinic to bring in a rowing machine for me so I could start training and I would go out to the water, you know, three times a week and every other day that I wasn't out there, I would just row on the rowing machine. And uh, it just so happened my coach I was learning from at the time knew a female rower, which is, uh, that was the same classification as me. And so my boat was, you have to have one male and one female rower. And she was the same classification as me. She was looking for a partner. She wanted to go to the Paralympics. And so we met, we rode together, and it was a pretty good match. And so, you know, a lot of things kind of fell together, and we started training full-time, and we were able to uh, win a bronze medal in the 2012 Paralympics. So, wow. I mean, yeah, things just came together for me. That's for awesome. Us. So what came next? Um, I did another year of rowing uh, while I planned out my – my next uh, challenge, which was riding my bicycle from uh, Maine to, to California in 2013 to 14. And so you raised how much money for, for wait, what was your charity for that event? Um, I raised money for three charities, uh, the Coalition of Food America's Heroes, the Semper Fi Fund, and Ride to Recovery. Um, and that ride took me 181 days. Wow. It was 5,180 miles long, something like that. Um, and it was through the winter, um, during the polar vortex winter. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm sure you uh, do very well. <laughs> yeah, up in Maine, ended up in San Diego or mm -hmm. uh, Camp Pendleton, California. And yeah, we raised 125000 Wow. So what part on that bike ride, there had to be a part where you were like, I am done with this bicycle. <laughs> I mean, I feel like every long ride I do, and I don't do 5,000 mile ones, but there's a point where I'm like, I've got to get off this bike. Was there a yeah, point you know, where you were done? I was ready to be, I was ready to be finished with it. I never wanted to be, I never mm -hmm. wanted to quit. I wanted to be, you know, after the first month or something, I was ready to be finished but in the way that I had decided to finish it. So right. I was ready to be done with it, but I wasn't, there's was no way I was going to call it quits before I finished the way that I wanted, that I set out to finish. So as much as I wanted to stop, I couldn't until I was ready 
until I had finished the job. Well, and there's something that, you know, so important about when you set off on a journey or a race or some sort of event that's just so mind-boggling that you have to know with undeniable certainty that you're going to do it, that you're going to finish. And, and it sounds like that was exactly how you were. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have... If you don't at least, if you can't at least fathom the possibility that you could accomplish something, then what you're doing is either too difficult for you, or, um, or you need some kind of a attitude adjustment, or <laughs> I don't know. Like if you if you if you can't even fathom yourself doing it, you're probably not going to do it. Right. But you've right. already decided not. But I mean, it's it's okay if you're sitting there saying, I don't know if this might. This might be possible, but I don't know for sure. Uh, that's fine because at least you're giving yourself the opportunity to find out. But if you've already decided that it is impossible, then just don't even start. Right. Your wish. So like any good um, crazy person, you found the sport of triathlon. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I wanted to try and make the Paralympics again. And my rowing partner had since moved on to other sports. And I figured I had just rode my bike across the country. So maybe I would be suited for triathlon. Right. And triathlon first time in the Paralympics was 2016. So I decided, well, why don't I have a shot at it? And I spent uh, a couple years training for that, but I was not able to uh, make it to the Paralympics, unfortunately. So what was the most challenging of the three sports for you? The bike actually, because, well, they were all, I mean, they're all equally hard um, if you're going at the right intensity. So they all hurt, you know, as much as each other. But I struggled with the bike because I decided I was going to do it on a normal bicycle. And for the classification that I was in, I had to race against, you know, guys that had just one single leg uh, amputation. So they had one intact leg or they had cerebral palsy. So they had all their limbs, uh, but they just had that, you know, muscular, uh, neuromuscular condition that, you know, uh, disadvantaged them. So I was always a little bit more on the more disadvantaged side of things for that category. It's always a spectrum of, you know, disability. So a little bit, you know, disadvantaged. Um, and I was, I saw, but I thought going in, if I just worked hard enough, if I just outworked everybody, then I'd be able to close that gap on the bike. Um, but I was never able to uh, close the gap enough during that time period. Um, so I wasn't able to qualify this. They just, they would just blow me away on the bike. And then I would catch them a little bit on the run. I would maybe get uh, two, three minutes up back on them on the run, but the bike, I was never able to get going fast enough. So during this time where you were tackling all these new sports, what, how many different prosthetic changes did you make? I know talking to Scott Rigsby, he's always got amazing stories about his, you know, the legs he's had and the changes and the technology. So what kind of, um, like, I guess, change did you make from like different types of legs, I guess? Yeah. So I would have, uh, you're not allowed to wear prosthetics for the swim. So I would just have, uh, just my legs, my regular legs. And I would have the inner parts of the, my leg sockets on, um, 
but I couldn't have like a prosthetic attachment on. Right. Okay. Um, I would do the swim and I would take my wetsuit off and then my, I would put on my running legs, uh, which I've had for a long time and they're, they're pretty basic. Um, so I didn't really do a whole lot of changes to those. Um, but I would put those on and run to transition, take those off, uh, put my cycling legs on. And the way that these things would work is like, I'd have the inner socket attached to my leg and these outer sockets were kind of interchangeable with pins. So I would have my running legs and my cycling legs would have the same mold that would fit right onto my inner sockets. So I could change them out really fast. Mm-hmm. So I would run into transition, put my cycling legs on, and then I would get out of transition, do the bike, come back, uh, and then change back into my running legs and go off on the run. And so that was another thing that I was, that I struggled, that I was uh, behind on was uh, time in transition because I couldn't run with my running legs on. So I had to walk my bike out of the transition. And then it obviously it took me a little bit longer to, to do all my changes. Mm-hmm. And so how, that was the, how did the cycling legs differ from the running legs? Um, man, they are just a totally different thing. Um, so my, my running legs don't have any hinges on them. So they're just like, uh, a cylindrical pylon coming out of my leg and they attach to like a C shaped piece of carbon fiber. Okay. Then, and that's it. And they're, so they're pretty basic where my, my biking legs. They have, have to hinge. <laughs> have a hinge yeah so they have a hinge and they would have a totally different prosthetic foot on there and i would have um a cleat bolted onto the bottom of the prosthetic foot that i could clip in and out and they would have an elastic band that went over the front of them um to help me pedal so they were totally two totally different uh limbs so how hard was it to clip into a bike to a pedal when you can't, when you don't really have any feeling or how does that work? Or do you, do you feel it like on the top of your leg or in the bottom of your leg? How, how does that work? I can kind of feel the sense. I can't, I can, I can feel that when it's on the right spot. Uh, and I would have, uh, I use speed play, uh, zeros. Okay. So they're pretty easy to clip into and out of, um, there was really only cleats I could use were speed play zeros or speed play light action. And my prosthetist put like a, we drew a line where the cleat was on top of the prosthetic foot so I could line it up. Um, but you know, I could usually feel it when it was on the right spot and then, but it, you know, it took, it took some practice, you know, being able to do it. So what's coming up next for you? So with every failure, there is a, uh, a lesson to be learned. So what I learned when I was doing triathlon was I had a, a bit of a talent with, for running. Cause I was able to go, I set a goal for myself of uh, 18 minute 5k. Uh, I figured that was how fast I needed to run in order to, to be in the hunt. And I was able to meet that goal pretty quickly, like surprisingly quickly, uh, a lot faster than I expected. So I kind of learned that I had a little bit of a talent for running. And yeah, so I, a little bit. I would say a little bit. <laughs> That's really fast. <laughs> yeah, it's not too bad. It's, it's pretty good. You know, it's not as fast as, you know, a 5K professional runner, but, you know, it's, it's not too bad. 
Yeah, so it's awesome. <laughs> I found that out about myself. And I decided I was going to do another big challenge, big fundraising challenge. And so I figured uh, I could use running for that. And so I decided I was I would run a month long of marathons, back-to-back marathons. So I'm going to do 31 marathons over the course of 31 days, all in 31 different cities. Wow. Let's all take a moment to think about that. <laughs> so have you done marathons recently? Yeah. So, you know, I'd only done two by the time I decided I wanted or So I'd only done one by the time I decided I did the Marine Corps marathon. And later that year, I decided I was going to do this marathon challenge. So at this point, I've probably done 20 uh, just training for this. Okay. So I did, uh, I did the Marine Corps Marathon again, and then I would do kind of six-week training blocks, and I would do I'd, uh, two marathons, and I would do three marathons, and then I maxed out at doing five marathons uh, back-to-back, just, you know, testing different ways of pacing and, you know, refueling and, you know, strategies that I would be able to use. And then over the last 12 weeks, I've been running a marathon every week, uh, just in preparation, just as training for this. So I've done a pretty decent number at this point. So a couple of questions. How is Marine Corps? I'm actually running that in 12 days. I'm doing a, I'm going to be a wheelchair pusher for, um, my little friend Logan through the Kyle Peace Foundation. So that's my first, um, it's actually my first standalone marathon I've done a handful of Ironmans, but I've never just, just done a marathon. So is it as awesome as everyone says? It really is. You know, it's, um, man, there's this crowd lying in the street and, you know, you're running. It has, I mean, anything Marine Corps, I think is pretty awesome. And, you know, it gets started off with a big cannon, uh-huh. and, uh, you know, and there's Marines there and they're cheering you on and, it's really patriotic and it's, you know, in and around the monument and it finishes with a hill. So <laughs> I keep hearing about that hill. It's not too bad. It's not, it's not a super long hill, but it's pretty steep. <laughs> so let's talk about this 31. When does your 31 days start and in what city? It starts this Thursday on October 12th. And I'm actually talking to you from London, which is where it starts. Oh, very cool. So this episode is going to air on the 13th. So you'll do your first one in London on Thursday. And then where will you be Friday when this goes live? Friday when this is live, I'll be running in Philadelphia. And then also I'll fly, obviously, from London to Philadelphia. And then I will pick up my RV and I'll run in Philadelphia on the 13th. And then I will hop in my RV and drive to New York. And then I will just repeat that pattern, drive into different cities. Uh, until I wind my way all the way back around to Washington, D.C. So what is your support crew like? Obviously, you're not doing the driving, right? No. So I have, <laughs> uh, I have a driver who's driving my RV. I, my only job is to run, uh, run my mouth for interviews, and uh, uh, run my mouth to eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're going to need to do a lot of that. Uh, uh, so I have the driver, and then my wife is coming along, my wife, Pam, and she's pretty much... I, I, her official title is team leader, but she's pretty much do everything person. So she's going to be handling, uh, you know, any kind of media contacts, any kind of interviews. She's going to be handling my schedule, itinerary, 
Um, any kind of snafus that we have, she's going to have to figure out how to work around it. So she's going to be do everything. Uh, and then my mom is also going to be coming to help her, uh, but also to be my massage therapist. She's a professional massage therapist. Oh, you're going to need that. So what do you anticipate doing the run? Like what time wise? I know it's going to probably get a little slower toward the end, but with your 18 minute 5k, um, <laughs> how fast are you doing these marathons every day? Based on the tests that I've, the test runs that I've done, it will be anywhere between, so I'll start off anywhere between four and four and a half hours of actual running. And then, uh, I'll be taking the way I've been pacing is I've been taking three 20 minute breaks during the period. So over the whole thing, uh, start to finish will be about five and a half hours, but with that four and a half hours of actual running. And then I'll just uh, hang out for maybe a little bit and then hop in the RV and get going as soon as I can. That's really impressive. So I'm going to be running at the pace that you're going to run like your 31st one at my, <laughs> my Marine Corps. Hopefully I won't slow down too much. Uh, I'm kind of hoping that after the first week or so, maybe my body will start to adapt and maybe I'll get even, even start getting faster. That's my hope anyway. That'd be awesome. So what are you raising money for? So I'm raising money for three veterans charities again, uh, Coalition of Salute America's Heroes, the Semper Fi Fund, and my new one for this, this challenge is the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. They're all charities that uh, they have their own niche, uh, each of them. And what they do is they all have their own way of helping wounded veterans rediscover their new way of contributing to our society and contributing to their family. Um, which is something that some people will go overseas and they will become wounded in some way. They will come back and they will have trouble to reintegrate into society or, or reintegrate back into their family. And so what these charities do is they, they help in whatever, in whatever way they, they need um, to do that. Very cool. So how can everyone follow you on your journey? Uh, yeah, if any people want to follow along, so they can go to my website, robjonesjourney.com, and there you can you can donate, um, and then also you can RSVP to come and run. Um, I'm encouraging everybody that wants to, to come and run any kind of distance you want. Um, you don't have to do the full marathon, but if you want to, that's awesome, or just run 500 feet, or just come out and don't even run at all and just come out and show your support. Um, so you can RSVP there. You can see my schedule. Uh, you'll be able to see updates. I'll have my social media linked into it, which is at Rob Jones journey on everything. So I'll have that linked in. So you'll be getting updates there and you can buy t-shirts. Um, a portion of which, uh, of the proceeds will go to, to charity. And yeah, that, that's the best way to, to get in touch with me or follow along. I was just looking on your website. It looks like you'll be in Atlanta on November 8th with four to go. That's the. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe you'll be, and I don't wish you to be tired and slow, but I might can run a little bit with you. Nope. <laughs> by, I, hope by you <laughs> I hope you do come out and run. That'd be awesome. Anybody else? Yeah. Anybody yeah. else in any of the cities I'm going to be running in, you know, come on. Yeah, out. definitely. I'll post the link to the schedule up too um, on the show notes. So, one more question for you. This podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, and it 
comes from the idea that we all have the same 24 hours in our day, but it's what we each individually do with those 24 hours that makes us happier, healthier, and just um, have a greater impact in this world and, and on, on other people. So Rob, what is something that you do every day in your 24 hours that makes a difference in how you live your life? Um, I would say I use the weight. And what I mean, let me explain that to you. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, there's always going to be, when you're faced with, with a tragedy or a hardship or any kind of negative uh, occurrence in your life, something that seems negative, you have, uh, you know, kind of one or two options that you can do with it. You can see it as a detriment, see it as something that's weighing you down and preventing you from, from getting to where you want to be and just let it be a dead weight on you. Or you can see it as a tool. Uh, you can see it as something that you can use to make your body adapt and in turn become stronger from. So for example, if you're doing a strict press in the gym, you can go in and you can just hold a barbell on your back or on your shoulders and eventually you'll just be on the ground because you can't possibly hold it anymore. Or you can go into the gym and you can lift it up and, and use that weight to make your shoulders stronger. And then because you're using that weight and you're becoming stronger, you're actually be able to handle whatever that weight was or whatever that tragedy was or that negative occurrence. And you'll be able to add, you'll be able to pile stuff on and be able to handle even more. And then when you get good at that, you'll be able to, you'll be in the mindset of actually creating the weight and creating these challenges for yourself. Like physically, purposefully going out and trying to make your life harder than it needs to be so that you can have a new way to grow stronger. And so I try and keep that in mind. You know, I just, as I go through my daily life, uh, whenever something, you know, that I think kind of sucks happens, I'll try and think of a way that I can use it, uh, to make my day better. That's awesome. Well, Rob, I wish you the best of luck in this 31 days coming up very soon. And I can't wait to follow your journey. And if there's anything we can ever do to help, let, let me know. But best of luck. And I, I know you're going to do great. And we will definitely direct everyone to your your site and so they can cheer you on as well. And maybe come run with you. Yeah, definitely. Thank you very much. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come out and uh, spread the word about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. 